Last week, Bayer did its third deal of the year in women's health. That's a market that's long been underserved, despite representing half of the world's population. And it's one where young biotechs have long struggled to raise venture money. Is Bayer's deal with Candy a sign that companies and investors are finally paying attention to the field? Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor, and I'm joined by my colleagues. Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. On this week's podcast, we'll look at financing and building women's health companies, plus Russia's entry into the vaccine race, and we'll look back at our recent survey on M&A opportunities during COVID-19. Candy, a single-asset menopause company, found at least a $425 million exit as Bayer continues to build its women's health portfolio. CEO Mary Kerr told BioCentury's Elizabeth Eaton for her story last week that the company's experience is, quote, very encouraging. Are you encouraged, Simone? Well, yeah, I am. I think this is pretty cool. I think there's two sides of this coin. So on the one hand, this was a deal that was actually led by two women, Mary Kerr, the CEO, and Marianne DeBacca at Bayer. And Marianne was particularly pleased that it had been led by two women, and it's really an important area. Another aspect of this is we had a commentary in BioCentury last year from Stacey Seltzer at Aisling, really talking about the fact that women's health is still such an underserved market with untapped potential. There is a part of me that also wishes it wasn't only women waving the flag on this. would be nice to see that actually, you know, there's two sides of that coin. On the one hand, I'm really glad that women are driving this and that they're getting recognition for it and that they're being successful. But on the other hand, we really want everybody waving the flag on this. And so, yes, I do think it's an important deal. And I think it's important to note that there needs to be more investment. Yes, definitely, Simone. Given the size of the potential patient population, what are the main focuses of these women health companies? That's a really good point, Jeff, because actually women's health covers a range of diseases. In some cases, you can include breast cancer in women's health, which obviously falls into the cancer category. And there's a huge amount of activity in breast cancer and a lot of progress. But more traditionally, people think of it as Things like menopause treatment, certainly contraception falls in there. Fibroids is one of the big areas. Polycystic ovary syndrome. Endometriosis is a very important one, which is obviously related to uterine fibroids. So mechanistically, there's actually a lot of diverse things going on behind diseases that we call women's health. And so biologically, you do want to address them in different ways. And so it is a fair point to say that you might have companies that are pursuing specific indications, but don't necessarily have a women's health division or categorize it that way. That said, a lot of these areas, including endometriosis and so on, are vastly underserved. Well, Bayer believes that the therapy that they're getting from Candy could generate sales of a billion euros globally each year. The deal is expected to close in September. What I'm curious about is one of the things that Mary Kerr flagged to us when she spoke with us is just the massive struggle for startups to get through the valley of death. They need VCs for that. I know Advent, which backed the company and held a 20% stake at the time of the takeout, has focused on investing in women's health for a while now. Are there other VCs to look out for? 
Jeff, let's call it like it is, right? The reality is that the VC world is a largely male world. Mm. And there is a huge unmet need here, but it's not one that is front of mind for them. And mm -hmm. there's also, if you ask me, a lemming mentality. People go after things that are known. So there are some other VCs that are in this space, but on the whole, yeah, people have struggled. And I think that as we see maybe more women become VCs, we might see more attention paid to this. Sounds good. Well, let's turn now to a story that surprised me as being one of the biggest stories of last week, or if not the biggest, one of the most talked about. Russia announced that Sputnik has been approved, and this is their new vaccine. It generated a lot of controversy among biopharma pundits and researchers. None other than Derek Lowe said, quote, I think it's a ridiculous publicity stunt. Simone, Selena, is there a there there? Is this just a stunt or is this vaccine one that we should actually be watching? I mean, as far as I know, it was approved on immunogenicity data, right? So we should be watching it like we're watching any other vaccine that has promising immunogenicity data. At some point, you need to know how that translates into protection or we need from other vaccines to get a handle on what is an actual correlate of protection and then back apply that to all the interesting vaccines. I agree with Selena. I mean, look, let's just refer to Derek's point here. He's right. This is not the way drug development should be done. This was, as far as I understand, they've basically done two non-randomized open-label phase one, two studies with 38 patients each. They are planning to do a 2000 patient phase three trial. I think that was slated to start on August the 12th, but I don't even know if that's powered sufficiently to see efficacy. Remember the other trials that we're looking at, the J&J &J ones and so on, are looking at 30,000 patients each. So this is not how to do drug development. But that said, like Selena points out, it's a vaccine. Frankly, the biological basis of the vaccine, what we know about it, is similar to many others, right, Selena? That's right. It delivers the spike protein. And I think it's using a viral vector, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jeff, that others are using, adenovirus 5. It's AD5 and AD26, and both of those are in other vaccines, right, Selena? Yeah. So, you know, scientifically, what you're saying is that this could work. It could. It's just, it's very unproven at this point. So I think it's really more of a, Derek's right, it's a publicity stunt. It's really more of a statement about this is not how drug development, vaccine development should be done, but it's really not an indictment of the molecule itself. It could work. Time will tell. Time will tell. Yeah, but I was over at a friend's house yesterday and a 10-year-old boy was talking to his 90-year-old grandfather about this vaccine and wondering why it can't be given to everyone in the world. You might want to note that Putin said that he gave it to his own daughter, hmm. but he didn't say that he took it himself. So I don't know what to read into that. <laughs> All right. Well, last week we hosted a webinar in partnership with investment bank PJT Partners to discuss the results of a survey that we conducted on what the industry expects from deal making in the immediate future. Simone, I know one point that came up was consolidation. What sort of consolidation should we expect to see among large companies and small companies? Yeah, so this is something that came up on the panel and then also with a couple of conversations I had before the panel with the panelists. And there's sort of two areas we're thinking about. On the one hand, we've seen these very big mega cap consolidations. What is it, Selena, like one a year for the last three yeah, years? Yeah. 
one or two. Yeah. Yeah. Abvi, Allegan, and then Seljean. And so there's sort of a feeling that, yeah, those are going to carry on maybe at that same rate, one to two a year. And, and some people have told me that they just don't think that there's enough space to have 15 to 20 to 25 huge mega caps in Biofarm. That's what some sort of folks have told me. And, you know, there was a sort of feeling that that would continue as it is. But there's also another part of it, which is this growth of small companies and consolidation of those. And Stelios Papadopoulos, who's often sort of thought of as one of the grandfathers of biotech, and he is the chairman at Biogen, really feels that the low interest environment and the importance of acquisitions for growth are going to favor M&A. So, you know, he points to if you've got like a hundred to $150 billion market cap and you're one of the huge companies and you've got loads of sales and there's a company with a one or $2 billion in sales and a lot of growth ahead. So there's a lot of temptation there. His quote, I think was in the time when capital is cheap and growth is king, you will pay up significantly to the point that a smaller company cannot resist. But Selena, there's another angle on this. Among the small companies, I mean, we see so many, like, say, car tea companies, each of which sort of has a different nuance, right? A different kind of, one might have a switch or a different kind of technology. Do you think that there's a place for big companies to go, like, creating a suite of those? One thing that Stelio said that was really interesting was that he doesn't think these larger biotechs that are trying to go independent to become the next biogen are going to be able to do it. So, I mean, that's sort of a controversial topic. I mean, people feel differently about that. There's certainly a whole class of independent biotechs who are trying to retain commercialization rights and they're making a go for it. What do you think about that, Simone, Jeff? He did say that, and it is an interesting thing, because on the one hand, you've got companies like Al Nylum, right, which have now got products on the market, and they could go across multiple therapeutic areas. They might be well poised to be this next class. Regeneron maybe is already there. So I think that there's certainly companies with that technology or with that recipe, let's say. But I think Stelius's point is that it's just too tempting, that you end up with hurdles along the way, and it's just too tempting. When the money's good and you get offered that, you're going to take it and go. So I, I don't know that I come down one way or another yeah, on that. Yeah. But it'd be really interesting to see what happens as this, like you said, low interest environment continues for a while. Are we going to see some of these larger companies snapped up? Now, a major finding of this survey, one that really surprised me, but I guess it completely makes sense as we're in the age of COVID-19, infectious disease has surpassed cancer as the therapeutic area most ripe for deals. Is that here to stay or is this just a function of the pandemic moment that we're in? Well, Ryan Richardson, who's chief strategy officer at BioNTech, he actually thinks that this isn't a flash in the pan. Now, BioNTech is partnered with Pfizer, and they've got one of the, would you call it front-runner vaccines, Selena? Absolutely. But he says that they started out in cancer, but they'd already pivoted to infectious disease, he says. And so, you know, I think that there are some technologies out there that we're seeing now for the pandemic. And we are talking to a bunch of people, especially for our back to school issue. And there's really a strong feeling that this time might be different, that we need to be prepared for the next pandemic and that there could be a sustained interest in infectious mm -hmm. disease. 
Simone, on, on one of our earliest podcasts, I think Jay Bradner made a point here. What was it again? Remind me. Yeah, this is something I come back to over and over because it really stuck with me as well. And what Jay said was that what we now know about the virus, about SARS-CoV-2 and its active site, is it's so overlapping with the structure of SARS-CoV-1, the virus that caused the 2003 epidemic, that if we'd carried on then with drug development against that virus, we would probably have something in hand today that could be active. And so, you know, we have a gazillion, and Selena knows the actual number, of molecules in Biocentury's portal. What, what exactly is that gazillion? Give me a ballpark mm, there, Selena. Over 730. And like a bunch of those are preclinical new molecules directed against this virus, right? Yes. So the question is, what's going to happen to those? And a bunch of people really feel like there's a space for some of these consortia to keep activity going on those, bring them to a certain point in development, let's say maybe get them through safety in phase one, so that they could be a reservoir, they could be used if there is another pandemic, because we know that coronaviruses can make pandemics. Yeah, we've now had what, three jump from animals to humans and cause big problems. So I suppose we should be ready for the fourth. But I mean, the other thing to think about here is, sure, it's easy to say right now that interest in infectious diseases will continue. And maybe some of these new modalities are an avenue to do things you couldn't do in infectious diseases before. On the other hand, the business model for infectious disease is still fundamentally broken. So until you can create a market, you know, I'm thinking broader in terms of like antimicrobial resistance and new antibiotics. I'm not sure you fix the sustained interest in anti-infectives until you fix the business model. Right. Or maybe there's some sort of grand scale public-private partnership kind of approach that really needs to think about this. Yeah, we have been writing about this a lot and we'll continue to write about this until it's fixed. You can find all of our coverage at biocentury.com. Our coronavirus coverage is available in front of the paywall at biocentury.com slash coronavirus. That's where you'll find our COVID-19 resource center. We have a clinical trials tracker and all of those more than 700 compounds and vaccines that are in development. You'll be able to find stuff on them there. You'll also be able to find our podcast there or go to Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, or Google.